Welcome to Pridescape, the official podcast of Pride Northwest, home of the annual Portland Pride Waterfront Festival and Parade, and much more. Each month, we will be bringing you the latest Pride Northwest updates and important news and information affecting Oregon and Southwest Washington's LGBTQ community. To learn more about Pride Northwest, visit our website at pridenw.org. And now your host and executive director of Pride Northwest, Deborah Porta. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Pridecast, the official Pride Northwest podcast. Today, I'm welcoming Robin Will, president of GLAPN, G-L-A-P-N. They are a local nonprofit who are our LGBTQIA2S plus uh, historians. Robin will be joined by Melissa Lang, also with Glappen. We're going to have a wide-ranging conversation about history in our area for our community, um, challenges that we've faced, what it means to collect and track the history of LGBTQ+, LGBTQIA2S+, uh, Oregon, Oregonians, uh, and why. Why is it important? Why do we need to know our history? Where do we come from? Uh, and then we'll also talk about what Glappen is up to now uh, in the current times, including recognizing the 30th anniversary of what we affectionately call the Measure 9 times. Welcome to the program, Robin and Melissa. Yeah, I'm, my name's Robin Will, and I'm president of Glappen. We've been around since 1994, which was about the time that... Uh, one of the trends in in history, the historical community in general, they they started recognizing that community history, uh, the history of ordinary people, little organizations, that sort of thing, was as valuable as uh, dates, times, legislations, battles, whatever. Uh, we got our start specifically. We got jump started by uh, a historian named Alan Barube in. Uh, San Francisco area. Alan is probably best known nationally for a book called Coming Out Under Fire, which is a story mm -hmm. of queer people mm -hmm. in World War II. And he got the raw material for that book out of the dumpster, out of a dumpster by his apartment building. Someone, oh, wow. mm -hmm. someone threw it away. You know, somebody died, people went in who were not possibly queer friendly, didn't care one way or another. They threw all that stuff away and he found photo albums and one thing or another. That's when he started uh, talking about community history and the, the history that got uh, that got ignored otherwise. And, uh, and that became sort of a national trend in the 90s and Glappen responded. Uh, formed in 1994. We've still got some of our founding members with us just to uh, gather material about queer history any way they could through, uh, through interviews, through collection of personal papers, uh, organizational papers, one thing or another, to keep it from being lost. And uh, to this day, I occasionally get emails from or queries from people like, this old guy died in our apartment complex and this is who he was and this is what I've got. What can I, you know, sure. what can I do with that? Uh, so it, it still happens that way. Uh, we were fortunate to make a, uh, an arrangement uh, from the get-go with Oregon Historical Society to host all of our material archives. 
that means uh, that means that we don't have to hustle to pay rent for a warehouse for air conditioned warehouse uh, and all of the real estate that goes with the ordinary archiving uh, effort for material for paper archives. Uh, mm -hmm. It also means that we're limited to uh, stuff that originates in Oregon. Right, right. For mm -hmm. our archive, but um, that's not too bad. Uh, about 20 years ago, we started teaching a class at Portland State in the university studies program called uh, uh, LGBTQ history. That's gone through like I think four Glappen members as professors now. It's still uh, it's still going on. Uh, offered usually two terms a year, where the students do a variety of things. I took the class when I finally graduated from college in two thousand seven, mm -hmm. um, and at that time we were uh, processing we were processing the papers of uh, Ann Shepard, one one of the founders of P Flag Portland. Since then, it has moved more into the uh, realm of gathering oral histories from elders in the community, transcribing mm -hmm. them, discussing them, and uh, right. uh, that goes on. And what we're doing right now in uh, 2022 is observing, not celebrating, but observing the, uh, uh, the 30th anniversary of the Oregon Citizens Alliance Ballot Measure 9 which was a major, wicked, vicious constitutional amendment that would have been anti-gay. And uh, we can't celebrate it because although we won the, uh, we won the election, which means we kept them from gaining anything. We, we kept it from happening. Uh, it involved the entire community. Uh, one of the first times I think that the queer community in uh, in Oregon had ever, ever actually tried to act together on anything. We did a lot of things wrong. There are still some hurt feelings over it. Um, I definitely, uh, I definitely want to get into a little right, right near the end of that is when I moved to Oregon. I definitely want to dig into uh, the Measure 9 impact, um, including what you're doing today. Uh, before we get there, I'd like to to go back a little bit to Glappen itself to give folks a scope of the work that you do. For example, how far back has Glappen traced the queer community's presence in Oregon? I don't think we go back much earlier than, than the Vice Clique scandal that happened in 1912. Mm -hmm. uh, every, every city has its case sex gay sex scandal and we we had ours in 1912 80 uh 80 men eventually were arrested or involved somehow in uh uh in charges that uh you know came down to consensual sex consensual gay sex but it was illegal at the time sure. uh, um my guess is that there are personal journals and uh uh, journals and some newspaper accounts that go back earlier than that, uh, that uh, that probably people know about, but they haven't published anything. Uh, uh, we need to remember that before Stonewall, I mean, this was a long time before Stonewall, but uh, gay people were kind of unmentionable, except in terms of crime. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, so if they didn't make it in the newspaper into the newspapers, 
there's a question about how you find them, how, how you track them down. And uh, some of the personal pioneer journals and uh, even going back as far as Lewis and Clark, who dominated, who dime uh, documented, for heaven's sake, um, the same sex couples in the native, you know, in the native populations here. Um, Okay. Mm -hmm. So, so we know that existed, and there is a lot of stuff behind the scenes at Oregon Historical Society. But the the really big deal, uh, just in in terms of stuff that everybody would recognize, was the 1912 Vice Creek scandal, mm -hmm. and that is how we got uh, that scandal made enough fuss in the legislature that eventually we got. The sodomy law got tripled to um, five to 15 years in the state penitentiary. Wow. Uh, and uh, at the same time, the that was probably what it took to jumpstart the state eugenics movement. Uh, the eugenics movement had been unsuccessful up to, time, up to that time, but a sodomy conviction also got you referral uh, to forced sterilization to the state eugenics board. Just the fact that there is a state eugenics board is uh, is kind of gross. That um, went on, by the yeah. way, until the um, second term of John Kitzhaber's you know, administration. The eugenics board? Yes, they had changed their name by that time, but uh, they were sterilized. They were sterilizing immoral women and sex perverts, which means gay men. Mm -hmm. uh, um, everybody in the state, almost everybody in the state reform schools, uh, the home for the mentally retarded, sure. uh, the uh, state mental hospitals. The uh, it's the same the, way in Texas where I'm from. Yeah, I remember my I have family that that experienced that because they lived in an institution most of their life. Yeah, if you want a really bad evening's reading, just Google. Uh, Oregon eugenic sterilization, and uh, one of the places it will take to take you to is Glappen's website, where we have some articles on it. Uh, but the uh, the scope of the the scope of the situation was uh, it was just enormous. Um, I will add that it was a progressive cause. Sterilization was a progressive cause, so you've got to watch progressives. Uh, uh, you can't trust progressives any more than anybody else, but uh, yeah, I don't uh, think that word means what people always think progressive means. <laughs> it's a fad, like a, you know, it, you know, fads blow through like mm -hmm. windstorms, and sometimes it's a good deal, and sometimes it's not. But uh, uh, we don't have a lot of records because somehow before uh uh you know somehow during the Kitzhaber administration all of the state eugenics board records were destroyed oh wow and that was just a little bit before he issued the public apology there may have been some you know nobody really is willing to say that that order came from the governor's office, but it cleaned up a whole lot of liability issues when they had when they no longer had records of what went on. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. When do you, based on on looking at the history that Glappen has 
has traced and documented when, and I don't want to overstate the change, but when, when did Oregon start moving to not being quite that icky <laughs> for our community, basically? Um, I'm sure there are much better ways to say that, but. Well, there were bright spots from, from time to time. Uh, and you, you have to remember that the whole, the whole legal situation you know, applies only to people who don't have a lot of money or don't have a lot of attorneys. Sure. There's yeah. gay, uh, uh, and 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 probably to people who keep it just a little bit under control. But uh, there were gay bars in Portland. Of course, Portland is a seaport town. You know, mm -hmm. And uh, until the 1930s, when they finally built the seawall about the time the Burnside Bridge went in and that whole seawall esplanade went in there. Uh, boats tied up clear as far south as the Hawthorne Bridge or further south and there were docks and warehouses there. Sailors got off the boats and walked up the few blocks into downtown Portland, into the business district, you know, downtown Portland. And so there was this heavy amount of street traffic, you know, people right off the boats, loggers and commercial fishermen and right. the, the folks who ran stern wheelers up and down the river before there was an interstate highway. Uh, so there was a lot more street life at the time. Well, during about the 1940s, periodically somebody would... Uh, you know, somebody, a politician would decide to run on a platform that we're going to wipe out vice. Oh, yeah. Uh, and the problem with that is that there's a lot of money in vice and uh, there is a lot of money tied up in the real estate where vice occurs. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, during the vice clique scandal, uh, uh, one of the... Uh, uh, you know, which was one of those political campaigns, you know, started out with a political campaign against Weiss. Well, one of the, almost one of the founding fathers of the town owned most of the liquor franchises and also the bootleg operations in Portland. And yeah. also at, uh, you know, at the time that they're, uh, at the time they're saying, you know, church going people want the saloons closed and Henry Corbett didn't want, you know, right. Henry Corbett was making a lot of money by that time. So, but during the 1940s, they decided to crack down uh, and close all the gay bars and uh, the Oregon Liquor Control Commission oh, spoke up to say, you know, the 40s and then again in the 60s, OLCC themselves said, well, we can't discriminate. Yeah, you know, uh -huh, we, can, uh -huh. we, we can't discriminate like this. There, there is no grounds for us to sell booze to some people and not sell to other people. Makes don't really me picture don't really picture the OLCC being the uh, standard bearer for uh, for inclusion there. That's not uh, that's interesting. It makes me think that we had family in OLCC. You, well, yeah, that's yeah, we're that, everywhere, we're, Robin. Remember? We are er, we are everywhere, and uh, uh, and so some civil servant just stood up and say, you know, and mm -hmm. and said, well, we can't we can't refuse liquor licenses um, on those grounds. Things didn't don't seem to me. This is well within my lifetime. It seems to me that things didn't really begin to change for obviously queer friendly stuff uh, uh, until Bud Clark beat Frank Ivancy for the mayor's. Oh yeah, 
mid 90s, yeah. right? Early 90s? Uh, yeah, and I can't tell you when that was exactly, but all, all of a sudden things were different. Frank Ivancy was definitely anti-gay. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, with Bud Clark, it didn't matter. Right. Uh, and, and so the civic, uh, you know, I think the, uh, the civic climate changed at that time. That makes sense. You know, what's interesting to me, um, you know, we think about history being these, and I'm not the historian in the room, but being these very sort of unique, special circumstance things that happen when, when so much of history really is just about how, the, for example, this whole, this whole thing around our history is kind of impacted by who is making money off of the alcohol. You know, you don't think about those connections. And even thinking about Stonewall, Stonewall happened because the raid happened at a different part of the day because there was a really contentious mayor's race and somebody needed somebody to get caught. Yeah. You know, you know, we don't think about it. it's it's not this sort of romantic, sexy thing that we make our mythology out to be, you know. Yeah. Um, and we don't know we're making history. A lot of times we just know that we're pissed off about something. There's that. Yes, yeah, exactly. and, you know, somebody makes a little decision and somebody else says, well, yeah, what he said, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <clears throat> I think it I think it makes it or it knowing that historical events are often tied to what feels like common everyday human nature makes it makes it almost more sexy because it makes it more relatable. Right. Like sure. thinking about people in positions of power as outsiders when you make these connections that so-and-so was making money off the booze, it, it kind of brings them down to our level. And then it makes them a little more real and a little mm -hmm. more than we mm -hmm. story. Um, um, Very true. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, Melissa, uh, thank you for joining us <laughs> as well. And it's kind of a good, good time to pivot a little bit. Let's come forward to, to these days. What, because I have Robin, I didn't ask you this question either. What drew you to Glappit? And then I want to kind of move on to um, what you're doing now. Yeah. So um, what drew me to Glappin was I was working at Know Your City, which used to be a small nonprofit that focused on teaching the public about um, both our history and, um, you know, where does our water come from and where does our trash go? Um, and we were writing tours and uh, Cameron Witten, the executive director at the time, um, gave me an address and said, go meet up with these folks. Um, they're the Gay and Lesbian Archives of the Pacific Northwest. And we wanna write, write a um, LGBTQ history tour. So my first introduction to Glappin was in uh, George Nicola's living room with a couple of elders who I'd never met before. And I just started interviewing them, asking them what they would want to see on a tour, what stood out to them. And I was just fresh out of graduate school. And so engaging in history in this really intimate way was really exciting for me. So I stayed mm -hmm. with Glappin, um, going to meetings. And um, I mean, as a graduated you know, history historian, I was really excited about all these folks who had so many stories and mm -hmm. bring in, you know, artifacts or photo albums. And it just, 
felt like a gold mine to me. And I just kept going and then I built relationships and um, I've been yeah, going ever since. Right on, right on. And then she raised her hand at a meeting and now she's vice president. <laughs> That's how it works. That's how it works. I showed up to a meeting and I got a title. That's that's exactly yep. how it works. Yes. Well, let's talk about, you know, Robin, you mentioned measure nine earlier and that this is the 30th year. It is. Right? 30th year. Glappin is doing a lot to commemorate that. Uh, you're doing a lot anyway, but you're doing a lot to commemorate that. A, why is it so important to, to take note of the measure nine years, as I hear them called. Um, and, and why do we need to remember them? What are we learning from them? What can we learn from them? Well, it is important, first of all, because queer people are still a persecuted minority in the United States of America. Mm -hmm. uh, we are one, <laughs> women are the other persecuted minority. We're the ones who worry every time the Supreme Court yeah. meets to see what rights we get to keep or you know what what rights are going to get taken away which means they're not really rights um the uh oregon citizens alliance and conservative christian group discovered that we made the uh <clears throat> the oca really in the long run is a sort of a dominionist group the way uh the way a lot of the uh Christian activist groups are. They believe that we should uh, have an official state religion. We should be governed under Christian mm -hmm. principles. Uh, they tried, um, the first thing that they did, yeah, they wanted political power in the 1990s. The first thing that they did was uh, <clears throat> was a bill about abortion, which was defeated. The second thing they did was to try to repeal Governor Goldschmidt's anti-discrimination order, mm -hmm. which applied specifically to the executive branch. And they thought, aha, you know, we can <laughs> we can pick on queers better than we can pick on people that want abortion. So they they came after the queer community in 1992 with a constitutional amendment that would uh declare us immoral unnatural abnormal and perverse and to prohibit it, it was worded badly enough that no one quite knew what it meant but it certainly would have yes. pro prohibited uh libraries and public schools from devoting any resources at all mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. homosexuality bestiality sadism and masochism I think were the ones that were called out so a frontal attack on the constitutional you know on the rights of uh, of queer people happened at a time the gay liberation front started uh, organizing here shortly after Stonewall but it took a while to ramp up mm -hmm. and my impression you know my impression is that uh we were just barely formulating a way to be a community of sure. sexual minorities uh, at the time, you know, at the time that the OCA hit in 1992. So uh, from 70, that's almost 22 years. Uh, 
Well, let's not forget that you're still right. The, the AIDS epidemic is not, hasn't gone anywhere at that point either. There's just so much happening. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. And they used, they used AIDS uh, against us, of course. My impression is that everybody hates male homosexuals the worst and, uh, and possibly because uh, we've been more visible, although we were more visible at that time anyway. But uh, yeah, they, they, campaign, they campaigned on, you know, <clears throat> immorality and disease and filth. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was basically, a, you know, if you listen to some of the things they were saying, it was basically a campaign against butt sex and, uh, you know, this kind of, you know, immorality. And uh, they made a real big deal, uh, you know, a real big deal of that. Um, made a lot of money. They made a lot of money. They, yeah, they, you know, they did make a lot of money, and uh, I think Melissa's better versed on you know the specifics of that. But you know, the other part of your question is why is it important now mm -hmm. to pay attention to you know what, well we have the talent in the community, you know we have old people, old activists who uh, were still around who are still part of that. And uh, the pendulum is swinging nationally if all you have to do is look at legislation, uh, uh, the stuff that's coming out of the red states, the, the don't say gay bills, the incredible persecution of transgender children, especially, um, who are very vulnerable because they don't contribute to anybody's campaigns and they can't vote. So they're the ideal target, you know, you can... Uh, yeah. So it's all happening again, uh, or it, it is about to happen again, and we need to see if we can use anything that we learned histor you know, as historians uh, to head it off, uh, to head it off before it happens to us. So that's, uh, that's why we're, one reason we're looking at it, aside from the fact, you know, there's people in my generation, I'm, you know, in my 70s, you know, we were the ones who did it the, the first time. We have memories of all that. And uh, uh, we didn't do it all very well. There were, uh, but there's, yeah, there's still stuff to be learned from that. Absolutely. End, uh, of, di end of diatribe. No, that's great. That's, I mean, we, this has come up on this program before the, uh, you know, we have this sort of habit of getting comfortable and especially here in Portland, in the Portland bubble, as you say, making the assumption that, uh, you know, that we're here, we've arrived, we're done, we're, you know, things are good. And there's, and then we forget that, that that moment actually never really comes, right? Because as soon as you're comfortable and as soon as you're not paying attention, they're going to come again, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I, I don't know a lot about this. One of the things that I've heard over the years in talking to people about the, the, the quote, measure nine years is how, I don't know if damaging is the right word, but how traumatic all of that time period and all of that work and, and community uh, togetherness and community discord you know, I've had folks tell me that it that it almost destroyed the community here, that there was so much trauma and so much 
just everything through that 20 year period, basically. You've got AIDS, HIV, you've got the measure nines, you've got all these things happening. Um, and that, that it kind of still reverberates through the community now in terms of, of some of the divisions that, are, that we see, um, some of the progress that we probably should have made by now that we haven't made and those kinds of things. Do you, have you ever heard, what did it do to the community? Um, yeah, I could speak to that a little bit. I mean, I, um, in doing uh, interviews pretty early on, uh, looking at Know Your City, the, the two historical events that stood out the most was the uh, AIDS, HIV epidemic and Measure 9, um, mm -hmm. having such impactful resonance with the community members I was speaking to, speaking with, um, and, you know, on one hand, you have the trauma that comes from, you know, not just your rights being under attack, but in such a vitriolic and bigoted way. And that's really palpable with Measure 9. If you read any kind of literature that's coming out of the Oregon Citizens Alliance, um, anything out of Lon Maybon's mouth or Scott Lively's mouth, which you can learn more about that by visiting Just Out um, archives at PSU or OHS or the documentary Ballot Measure 9, which is pretty accessible online. So it was, it was language-wise, it was very violent. And then mm -hmm. actual violence that's occurring when you have historically, when you have a, a bigoted, hateful position being validated by just a ballot measure being proposed, violence is going to increase. Um, yeah. And uh, we lost some activists during that year. Two, two I think, or three um, activists were, were murdered um, because of violence out of Measure 9. And then you have, on top of that, um, the trauma that comes from that experience, you have the sort of divisions that were occurring within the movement. There was a lot of racism that happened within the movement. Um, and Glappen right now is, is working on an event that's gonna specifically um, shine light to that experience. Uh, so, the, I mean, the racism was so palpable that their, the main branch to fight against ballot measure nine was no on nine, um, a coalition group. And the, their, there were two groups, if not more, that I don't know about yet, um, that were established specifically to just um, escape this racism. There was the Black No One Nine um, group, and then there was the Asian Pacific Islander No One Nine group. Okay. Both, both those groups felt like they had to separate themselves in order to be able to keep fighting against this. And you had misogyny, and you had also a lot of classism and for lack of a better phrase, like cultural bigotry, right? So if you were flamboyant or maybe um, you cross-dressed at all, like you were not seen as someone that the broader LGBT mm -hmm. community was okay with putting up front on stage. Um, so there was a lot of, and then what people had to do then, what I, I would have come across in interviewing lots of folks is they had to put aside these experiences in order to move forward so you have a lot of resentment around you know more more white and more acceptable folks just kind of getting away with this because right. on the outside the whole have, have talked about wanting to not 
shine light on that in order to not distract from the main fight against Oregon Citizens Alliance and Lon Maybon and Scott Lively. So they 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 it was they were kind of hushed about it um, in order to protect the, the the sort of bigger, more specific cause at that time. And I and I think there's a lot of resentment that's still there in sort of that that not coming out, then it becomes sort of erased and that story isn't told. And so we're working hard at Glappen to do what we can to shine a light on that story in a way that's respectful and on, on people's timeline and in own folks way to, to want to tell that story. Um, so there's, yeah, a lot of pain and frustration and trauma that still needs to be healed. Um, and, and yesterday I, I had a conversation with Catherine Stouffer, who's sort of credited as the one to have brought down Oregon Citizens Alliance. And she was speaking to the need of having someone kind of come back in this community and do some of that healing work. Not necessarily, I, I didn't take away for like, for, for, for us to unify again, but really just on an individual level, folks deserve some sort of space and, and ability to, to heal what was occurred both within the movement and from without the movement. That, um, thanks for that. That uh, it sounds an awful lot like pride history, actually. You know? Yeah. Uh, oh, the common American story. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we have always probably, you know, I think the victories that we have won, because there's only like, 10 or possibly 20% of us, depending on which poll you read at, at what time, there's not enough of us to win elections on our own. You know, we have to have allies. Uh, we have to somehow, uh, you know, we have to somehow appeal to uh, enough of the electorate with our you know, basic humanity or whatever to, uh, to get those votes, you know, at, at the ballot box. There's a certain amount of Stockholm syndrome going stuff going on as we try to make ourselves and our community palatable, you know, to to the electorate, you know, at large. And so, I I was busy. I was fresh out of alcohol treatment, and I was working a swing shift job during most of the major nine things, which kept me out of circulation for you know. For almost everything, but I, you know, I had friends, you know, guys who were pretty effeminate, kind of swishy. You know, there's one of these things where you clock them as gay from across the street, mm -hmm. and they didn't want, you know, the the, the leadership kind of didn't want them in front of the TV cameras. You know, right. it's, it's kind of you know kind of embarrassing. I, I have been told, uh, I, I've heard any number of places, I can't tell you uh, where it came from, that drag queens were not welcome. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, which is the oldest, uh, and the oldest one of the most effective organizations in the city of Portland has been the Imperial Sovereign Rose Court, which can trace itself all the way back to 1958. Nobody else goes back that far in Portland. Right. That group was just really they they had to participate. They couldn't participate in drag anyway. There are there are, there are organizers and businessmen in that in the drag community who obviously uh, 
you know, who obviously participated anyway, but they didn't, you know, you don't want drag queens standing up for you. You don't want real effeminate guys standing up for you. You don't want black people standing up in front of the cameras and claiming any part of this movement because you want to make yourself acceptable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, the queer community generally just is not ever going to fit into, you know, you fit 100% into that married with 2.3 children in a picket fence kind mm -hmm. of scenario. We're always going to have people that are way too fabulous for that one way or another. But that was the, you know, that was the problem during the OCA elections was who gets to speak for us or who's allowed yeah. to speak. Definitely. So let's... um. Tell me about what commemorating the Measure Nine anniversary looks like. What do you? What is Glappen doing? What do we? What do we got going on? Well, Melissa is the brains of that entire side of the operation <laughs> right now. I'm not the brains. I'm just the conductor. We have a committee of uh, Glappen members and non-Glappen members who've been meeting since about January. Uh, after you know, about. Summertime last year, Robin started to kind of remind us that this year's Measure 9 is coming up. So we kind of mulled over different ideas and decided finally to just sort of form a committee. And um, we, in in um, in true Glappen form, uh, many stories came out and many ideas came out um, on how to uh, represent the story and engage with the public over it. And so um, initially, we thought, well, what if we support other groups to do their own programming? We could provide them with history and information and resources and networking. Um, and so we did some outreach to, um, to do that, and we didn't get a lot of response. I'm not sure that we packaged it well, packaged it early enough. And so we kind of figured, okay, we got to do our own thing. Then. Like, if we want to do an event that examines the racism that happened within the movement, we got to make this happen. And and so over time, we decided to sort of to focus on three main pillars, which are um, education. So just educating folks on what nine. So for folks who didn't live through it, uh, for folks who didn't uh, live in Oregon at the time, what was Measure Nine, and what does it mean for us today? Two, we really wanted to focus on intergenerational. Mm -hmm and conversations and so we're going to do some programming beginning in October but that might continue on around getting um, different generations together in the room to talk about organizing and engaging and coalition building so what worked in the past what works today how can elders support younger folks today and vice versa um, around sort of measure nine being that anchor um, and then we also, as I mentioned earlier, um, want to explore the racism that occurred um, during the within within the movement and, and during Measure Nine. Um, and so uh, we're really lucky and grateful to have um, KBU's Reverend Cecil Prescott kind of leading that. Effort. Um, so he's in a conversation with different folks, just having one-on-one -on -one conversations about what folks experience and what do they want to talk about. It's going to roll out, I think, a little bit later. Um, than the other programs. And so for that education uh, pillar, we had an event on July 17th uh, where we invited uh, Catherine Sadat, um, Ann Galiski, 
uh, Ramon Ramirez, Pat Young, and Holly Pruitt to sort of help us put together a program to kind of get into that basics of what was Measure 9. We recorded that event, and so folks uh, who want to watch that, we can provide that. Um, that video is already linked up on our website. Uh, we can make it available to you guys. And then up, coming up on September 8th, um, we're screening the 1995 documentary Ballot Measure 9, um, uh, directed by Heather McDonald, and which was also a Sundance winner. Um, so we're screening that at Clinton Street Theater, uh, 7 p.m. Tickets are $5. Um, and that, that documentary does a really good job at particularly educating folks on what Measure 9 was, what did activists have to go through, what, what did coalition building look like? Mm-hmm. And it really also, I think, dis, uh, displays that the, the bigoted language that was hurled at folks that I, I spoke to earlier. So that's a really good primer and place to start when it comes to Measure 9. And the, the director, along with other folks who were really engaged with that film, have talked about how they had to cut a lot out, one for longevity, but also because they really wanted to focus on the issue. And so discussions that had happened for the documentary, documentary about race and, and different dynamics, they, they intentionally decided to cut in order to sort of focus on, 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 on the, the legislative oppressive side of um, what was happening in the community. And so, there's an interest now to kind of go back and, and, and pick up those pieces that were left on the cutting room floor um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and issues of racism, issues of classism, misogyny. And so through our programming, we're going to try to do a little bit of that and, and do so in conversation to, to bring folks together to talk about these issues so that we don't repeat them. There's a lot of, you know, I mean, if you were to, I think, hold up a mirror to organizing circles today, you would see uh, Measure 9 organizing looking right back at you in terms of the racism that folks are, are are trying to combat within the movement, which looks different today than it did, you know, maybe 30 years ago, um, and, and or, or classism or, or sort of between, you know, maybe uh, so-called progressives versus radicals. Um, I mean, it's the same conversations and arguments and and uh, clashes that I think are happening today in organizing circles. And in that way, I hope, and we hope that the lessons that folks learn from Measure 9 um, can be used by organizers today to, to, not, to, to sort of shine a light on a way of not falling into the same traps. Gotcha. So where can, so let's do a couple of specifics. Um, where can folks go to get more information about what your plans are? Yeah, so um, you can go to glepin.org and on that front page of our website um, is going to be an icon for a calendar page. And uh, something that we insisted on pretty early on was that we didn't wanna just promote our programming. And so you can find all kinds of different programming that's going on around commemorating the victory against Measure 9. Um, OHS is partnering with the Eugene Lesbian History Project to do a program. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's going to be updated as soon as we have more materials. Rural Organizing Project, um, which uh, is an organization that came out of the fight against Measure 9. So therefore, they are also having their 30th anniversary 
um, have created a roaming exhibit um, that focuses on their history, but quite a few panels of the exhibit uh, deal with measure nine. Um, and then you have Western State Center over there, Eric Ward and Holly Pruitt um, created this really beautiful um, and really um, powerful digital history project called No One Nine Remembered. And so all those things are linked on our calendar page on glappen.org. And a lot of them are also linked through our Instagram page, um, which is just put in the search engine on Instagram, uh, glappen. And there's links there, as well as links to this year, Oregon Historical Quarterly put out an article that dive deeply into the uh, no special rights aspect of the religious right um, uh, political um, endeavors during the 1990s. Um, and so that's also linked in through our Instagram page. Nice. Tell us a little bit, I, how can folks uh, learn more about Glappen itself? Robin, how, how, how many staff do you have working for you, Robin? <laughs> Uh, Glappen is a very small organization and uh, entirely volunteer, and uh, and I have no staff working for me, and Melissa doesn't have any staff working for her either. <laughs> um, so how can folks get involved and support the work that Glappen's doing, um, either financially or doing the work that Glappen is doing? Uh, we would love to have more members, and we're pushing in that direction right now, hoping that uh, part of our Major 9 thing will, uh, will do that. First of all, you know, if you want to be very first on the list of volunteers, you could become a member of Glappen, and you can do that on the front page of glappen.org. That means, uh, you know, everybody is welcome to our meetings at all times, you know, we're, mm -hmm. we're not closed that way. But when it comes down to electing officers uh, and setting program pri priorities and all that, we rely on our members. You could become a member. If you are a historian, if you've got an old college term paper about local queer history someplace or uh, uh, anything to contribute, you know, along or your your old queer uncle's scrapbooks or something like that. Uh, you can you can write history for us, or you can give us those things, and uh, right. um, and we'll see that they uh, are document. Yeah, they wind up at Oregon Historical Society in the Glappen collection. If you are a serious computer nerd and know a lot about video, for instance. Um, one of our big challenges right now is how much stuff is happening digitally. And historians across the world, across the entire world, have the same problem with what to do with that stuff. Yeah. Uh, help us with, you know, help us figure out um, the very best low rent uh, digital arc, video archiving uh, that we can do so that we can keep stuff accessible. Sure. Uh, sure. Uh, keep it. Isn't there? Isn't there's a lot of stuff in the in the historical society that's not publicly accessible, right? That's right, that, and uh, you know you have to go, you have to go and ask to see it, um, and they're perfectly happy, you know, perfectly happy to show you. I mean, you know what's there. 
But, you know, that means going downtown, going up to the fourth floor of Oregon Historical Society, uh, paying admission if you're not part of Multnomah County, uh, uh, and then asking a librarian for, for mm -hmm. what you want to mm -hmm. see or, or what you want to browse. That is several steps, several degrees of separation. Sure. Uh, I, I am hoping, uh, and it looks like we're going to have to do some serious fundraising to uh, get more of a digital archive online. Stuff that you can just go to glappen.org and click on it and so the kids can do their homework or uh people that are curious can browse you know browse the stuff yeah without cost to them without any barriers at all nice. that's that's my ambition and we're not there yet but we're headed in that direction definitely definitely well robin melissa thanks for joining us um this is one of those conversations that we could you know spend the entire afternoon and still barely touch you know what's happening so again the website is glapen g-l-a-p-n dot o-r-g uh and from there you can find the calendar for the measure nine activities glapen and otherwise uh and then also connect from there to get involved any last any parting parting words um, yeah, so I'd like to also mention uh, we have some sponsors and partners for this. Um, don't shoot Portland PD or do, don't shoot Portland. So don't shoot PDX uh, uh, provided us with a generous sponsorship to help us through our programs, and we're really thankful for them to back this project. And um, it's been exciting that they, they see so many correlations between the work that they're doing and the need to for activists to be aware of our history. Um, and we have very own Pride Northwest is supporting us through a, a matching pool that we have. So right now, if you donate um, on our website, your donation will be matched dollar for dollar. And that pool is made up from Pride Northwest, Morel Inc., uh, Terry Bean, and Bill Dickey. And we're really thankful for that matching pool, uh, which uh, reaches um, $3,500. Um, and yeah, so we just wanna thank those folks, Western State Center and ROP. Sure. Right on. Good. Well, I mean, we're obviously happy to support and and very much appreciate the longstanding at this point relationship that we have uh, with Glappen and and any opportunity we have to to lift up what you're doing because it's I've learned a long time ago that if if we don't know our history, then nothing we do in the future is going to work out very well either. You know. Um, so I very much appreciate both of you. And Robin, I think you have parting words. Do I see? Oh, yeah, the, the history part is uh, so important. I came to this, I, I, I took the capstone in Portland State in 2007. And uh, up until that time, I wasn't particularly aware. You know, I, I had no idea of any queer history generally. And, and so I, I walked into that class with the, uh, uh, you know, with the idea that anybody who needed to know I was gay already knew, and it was otherwise it was nobody's damn business. Uh, and uh, but I was also just amazed, you know, I, I some, somehow and I, I hear this over and over again from other people, so I'm not the only one. You know, you kind of get the impression, you know, that you're a second class citizen that no queer person has ever done one damn thing worth remembering or writing down. Yeah. And uh, 
it it changed me you know just to be in that class and to, to realize these are these are stories that need to be told you know and, and of course if you stick around long enough you they make you president but uh, uh <laughs> but yeah the history we don't really understand or i didn't really understand you know until this sort of blindsided me what it felt like to think that you're not not really worthy of having a history yeah yes um absolutely. uh and so we do this and as as time goes by you know I, I speak in public to a lot of public groups and you know one thing we do is reassure queer people just across the spectrum that yeah they're worthy they <clears throat> they're worthwhile there's been a lot of accomplishment the stories need to be told and the other side of that, of course, is to the straight community, the community that doesn't know anything, is the fact that we're here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're here, we're queer, we get used to it. You get used to including people like us in your conversations and and in your legislation, in your curriculum planning, you know, and every other place where we've just ignored queer people for the last, you know, for the last several hundred years. Yeah. I think that's... Uh... I think that's an excellent finish. Uh, thank you, Robin. Thank you, Melissa. And um, folks, reach out to Glappin, get involved, support, and uh, and learn your history. Thanks, y'all. Okay. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for this special episode and spotlight with our friends Glappin. We hope you have a good rest of your summer. We look forward to having you join us on our next podcast, our next episode of Pridescape. Thanks, everyone. We'd like to stop for a moment and thank our sponsor, Intel. Diversity, equity, and inclusion have long been core to Intel's values and instrumental to driving innovation and delivering strong business growth. Intel is, a pr- is proud of their LGBT plus employees and their allies. Intel strongly believes that pride is not a June thing, it is an everyday thing, as we do here at Pride Northwest as well. Thank you again to Intel. Thank you for listening to Pridescape, the official podcast of Pride Northwest with executive director, podcast producer, and host, Deborah Porta. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information on what you heard here today and to support the work of Pride Northwest, go to pridenw.org.